he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I can thread my way through that maze. I, I finally learned how old people manage steps like these. You go around. You realize, of course, I'm not the brightest light bulb on the street. Happy birthday, America, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when you... Um, I've never been a fan of numerology. It kind of goes over my head. But you know, when I look at a passage of scripture and realize that it just absolutely slaps you right in the face, you better do something about it, right? You better think, you know, maybe there's something there for us to look at. And uh, we call it the, I call it the terrible twos because there are so many twos we got a ring on the... But anyway, um, you know, even the passage of Scripture that we just read, or was just read for us, it starts off by saying, why do you call me what? Lord, Lord. Now, I realize that's the, that's the Hebrew way of accentuating, of making things more important. But that was the first place that it dawned on me. Then it dawned on me that this parable is in two places. Ah, <laughs> uh, didn't it? But anyway, it's in two places. It's in the book of Matthew, and it's repeated again in the book of Luke. Not only that, but it is in the same location in both. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when you start thinking about twos, you... you uh, there are 16 pairs or twos in the Sermon on the Mount in the second chapter, that is in chapter um, 6. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, we have two foreign objects in the eye, that is a log and a speck. In, chapter, in verse 6, we have two animals, a dog and a pig. In chapter 7, verse 12, we have two askings, bread and stone and fish and serpent. In verse 13, we have two gates. In verses 20, 15 to 20, we have two trees. In verses 21 to 23, we have two um, claims. In verses 27 through 24 through 27, we have our parable and it is built on two foundations. And then we come to chapter 6 of the book of Luke. 
and not to be outdone, in verses 6, 1 to 13, we have two views of the Sabbath. In verses 20 to 26, we have the woe and the wheel, or the blessings and the curses. In verses 27 through 31, we have the enemies and the beggars. In verses 32 to 36, we have the enemies and the borrowers. In verses 37 through 38, we have judging and forgiving. In verses 39 to 42, we're back to where we started. We have the two different objects in the eyes. We have the logs and the speck. And then, of course, we have our parable. Well, excuse me, excuse me. We have the two trees. And then we have the parable of the two foundations. Now, does that begin to grab you? Does that begin to make you wonder why? <laughs> why all these twos? Well, when you think about it, it makes sense. At least it did to me. It made sense because I realized what he was literally telling us was that we have two lives. You know, when you come to know the Lord, you're born spiritually. So that gives you a earthly life or a life in the flesh. And it also gives you a spiritual life. You know, the Lord Jesus was both God and man at one and the same time. We also are both spirit and flesh. Remember in the book of Romans, he says it's very important which one you, you feed. Because if you're going to live for the Lord, you're going to have to learn how to feed your spiritual life, obviously, we feed our physical life with food. And if you don't have enough energy, like the last time I tried to preach, I didn't have enough energy. I got about halfway through and I passed out. So you got to have something for the physical body. But you also have to have something for your spiritual body. And that is the Word of God. There's an old Cherokee uh, legend that talks about uh, the old Cherokee chief talking to one of his sons. And he said, son, there are two wolves inside of you, a good wolf and a bad wolf. Now it's up to you which one you feed because the one you feed will be the one that will characterize your life. And it's interesting because when my daughter Faith told me that, I thought, boy, that's that perfect for the idea of the twos. Where, where are we? Well, which one do you feed? You know, it's kind of like, what's your default page? What happens when you're all by yourself? You're alone. Where does your mind go? That's, a, that's kind of an indication, just a small one, but a kind of an indication as to where we are with regards to our understanding of our life. Now, we also have to understand that the Sermon on the Mount, which this parable is part of, is the first place in the New Testament where we really have what we would call a law. But now back to our twos, we have the law, which starts the Bible in the Old Testament, and we have the law, 
in the New Testament, which begins in Matthew. We have the law and we have the Sermon on the Mount. It's the closest you can come to law in the New Testament. And you know the common thread that runs between the two of them? You can't keep either one of them. You just, it, it, it's, in, it's an impossible situation to keep either one of them. But um, ironically, there's times, I suppose, when we try. But we, we got to look at this now from the standpoint of that parable. It talks not only about us as individuals and us as a building, but I believe it talks also about our nation. I believe it also talks about our church. And I believe it also talks about us as individuals. What do you suppose our nation was built on? What was the, what was the foundation of what made America great? I uh, found a couple of quotes in, in uh, Basher Mangalwadi's book that I really loved because I think it shows the two ways that our world and our nation in particular has evolved. In, um, in 1847, uh, well, in, I don't know whether it was 1847 or what it was, but uh, yeah, 1847, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his name was Robert C. Winthrop. Let me tell you what he had to say. All societies of men must be governed in some way or other. The less that they may have of stringent state government, the more they have of individual self-government. The less they rely on public law or physical force, the, mo the more they must rely on private moral restraint. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of men, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. Now, fast forward a number of years to an eminent scientist who spoke for our country and uh, his name was Carl Sagan. And uh, let me read what he had to say for you. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for the unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institution of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenon, phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how countercultural, no matter how counterintuitive, 
no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow the divine foot in the door. What did our country get built on? Our country got built on the word of God. And then what happened? Well, we began building on sand. See, when you look at that parable, you have to understand, I think very important, that it is the once for all thing. You don't just say, okay, I built my house on the rock, therefore I don't have to think anymore. No. It's day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. He does not lead me day by day or even year by year, but step by step my path unfolds. My Lord directs my way. So every moment I have to concentrate on where my strength is coming from. Because if I don't, it's very easy to step off the rock onto the sand. Do you know what the rock is? <laughs> I get a kick out of this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So you see, what am I building my life on? Am I building it simply upon the whims of the day and the needs of the flesh and the hope that I might have in what I myself am able to do? Or am I moment by moment, day by day, establishing my life upon the word of God? Because without it, I'm lost. So you see, a nation can drift just as easily as can an individual. You know, I think about our church. It's, um, it's always fascinated me when, when I think about churches. I, I, I look back and I, you know, you know, Harvard was built and because it started to go liberal, they built Yale. And when Yale started to go liberal, they built Princeton. And when Princeton started to go liberal, they built Faith. Isn't that interesting? What happens? Well, you see, it's very simple. It's just like Carl Sagan. You just don't leave the door open for anything spiritual. You feed only the physical. Because that's what we have. That's tangible. That's available to us. It's important that we have that. But it's not everything. It's only a partial of what we really need. You know, I told you that it was impossible for us to keep the uh, Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Did you ever really read it? You know, I've had people tell me that I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Well, boy, you're a whole lot better than I am. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, you'll in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, come on. <laughs> Unless... Unless you're able to keep your thoughts so pure 
that you never hate your brother or your sister. But if you do, you're in danger of the hellfire. Or if you have a lustful thought, that makes you guilty of adultery. Now you tell me you can keep the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, here's the secret. It's so exciting to me. We can do it. We can do it. And that's why that parable is given to us. That we can understand how to do it. By moment by moment. Resting on the rock. Because as we build this foundation on the rock. We have this life that we can enjoy. In the spirit. And in God. And and we can go to sleep at night with our conscience fairly clear. On the other hand, if you step over here onto the sand, notice it says the destruction in that parable is powerful. It is. Because our life was never meant to be anything more than trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. You know, when you compare two, I like twos, when you compare the poor in spirit with our parable, when you compare the two, um, you get a picture. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Actually, a better translation, believe it or not, would be poverty-stricken in spirit. When I hear, Jim, you're telling me that we can live a spiritual life and yet we're We're supposed to be poor in spirit. Well, here's the thing. What they're saying in that is the contrast between building on the rock and building on the sand. If you recognize your need, if you recognize that you can't make it on your own, then it's a simple thing to call yourself poor in spirit because you're not boasting in what you can do. It's a a picture of being absolutely certain that you cannot make it on your own. Isn't that what the law was given for? Paul says it, it was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to show us our need, to show us we can't do it on our own. That's poor in spirit. And let me read that parable again for us so you get a picture of what I'm talking about. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show him what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood came along and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them well, he's like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation when the stream broke against it. Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So when you think about a church, our church, you know, creeds, the Westminster Confession of Faith is probably one of the best creeds that's ever been written. And, and it's a, a way of summarizing the scriptures. And so we, put our, we don't put our faith in the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we say that's a good way to, that's a good way to look at the scriptures. It gives us, a, gives us a roadmap to get into them and really understand them. 
Well, what happens when you begin to say, well, we really don't need that. We can make it without. And, and then you begin to understand what happens to denominations, like the Presbyterians. Do you realize how many different Presbyterian churches there are? We call them the split peas. They're all over the place. There's all kinds of them. What did they, what did they split over? Well, they split over whether or not you're going to really trust that creed, and that's what you're going to hold on to. Whether you're going to really or not put your faith in the Bible. You know, the question that, that Satan asked a long time ago, hath God really said? You know, there's no question. The scripture is a cultural book. There are a lot of things that are cultural. But you know what our society has done? They've said, oh, well, that's cultural. And so we've built on the foundation of what our culture accepts. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the moral condition that we have around us. I, I noticed on the front page of the Capitol today a very interesting line. It says, we're tired of gun violence. You know, it isn't the gun. As bad as they are, it isn't the gun. Why don't we realize that people are sinners? And, and you, you remember what he said? We'll either control them through self-control in the Bible, or we're going to have to control them with a bayonet, which is another form of a gun. So you see, the picture that we're facing is the rock and the sand, and the rock and the sand as it's in your life. You'd think, I remember, remember when I was a kid, I realized the schools that I went to were in the dark ages, but regardless. Uh, you know what they taught me? They taught me a lie. They taught me that the Renaissance came by virtue of the printing press. Now, none of you ever heard that, I'm sure, but just in case one of you did or something, that's okay. But they taught us that it was the printing press that brought about the Renaissance, that that's what enlightened man. Well, you know what? The printing press was, it was invented in 1450 AD. The Chinese, would you believe this? The Chinese, in the year 972 AD, invented the printing press. And they printed over 130,000 sayings of the Buddha. Now, if the printing press was so great to bring about a renaissance, what did it do to China? Now, we could discuss the difference between the Bible and Buddha. But that's not the point. The point is, in no way was it the printing press that brought on the enlightened world that you and I live in. It was the book that was printed on that printing press that changed the world that you and I live in. If you ever get a chance, read, um, it's a hard name to remember. I hope I got it written down here. His name is, um, no, I don't have it. Yes, I do. Beshel Nangelwadi. What a name, huh? 
an, an Indian guy that wrote a book called How the, Bo the Book That Made Your World, printed in, uh, it was written in 2012, but it's current today, believe me. And he shows very carefully how it's the Bible that made our world what it is today. <laughs> you know what? It's the Bible that enables you and me to live. I remember, I remember somebody gave me a Bible one time. And in the front, on the front page, it said, Jim, this Bible will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this Bible. So the question is, what are you building on? What's your default page? Where are you in your life? Cheer up. It can be done. It just takes the time to know the holy, blessed, marvelous, wonderful, glorious word of God. Now, we're going to show that with communion. We're going to literally be reminded. Did you notice something? I hope some of you noticed this already. There's two things in the communion, isn't there? There's the bread. And there's the juice. I would like to read the words of institution. Paul gave us for the understanding of the communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, after the, he took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in order for us to have an understanding of whether or not we should take communion, I think it's a good idea to kind of reaffirm your faith. So that if you can answer these questions in the affirmative, then you can be absolutely certain that this communion is for you. Because you think about this. The Bible tells us that you don't take this in an unworthy manner. None of us could ever be worthy. It's the unworthy is, means that you're not, you're not in Christ. But... What it says is there's a penalty with that. And so it's a good idea to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. So I'm going to ask you these questions. You answered them. The table is yours because Christ is yours and you are Christ. Do you acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you have broken God's law in thought, in word, and in deed? If so, answer, I do so acknowledge do you believe that God the Father sent his Son 
and that Jesus, his son, died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he arose bodily from the grave, appearing to many, and then ascending to be with his father on high, and that he will one day return to this earth. If so, answer, I do so believe. Are you trusting in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Understanding that communion does not save you. If so, answer, I am so trusting. Do you understand that these elements um, represent the body of Jesus Christ broken and his blood shed for you? showing his death till he comes. If so, answer, I do so understand. Do you receive this sacrament as God's sign and seal that he loves and forgives you? If so, answer, I do so receive it. Do you acknowledge that Christ is your Lord, desiring to love and to serve him? If so, answer, I do so acknowledge. Just a couple of words before we pray. There's, um, there's, uh, and the ushers or the uh, elders, if you'll come forward and prepare the table. There's, um, there's bread. If you want the, the, the bread, the bread is there. Uh, and the cup is there. If, um, if you want the uh, little one that's all together, it's also there. There's still plenty of those for availability. Um, I would ask that when you take it, that you take it back to your seat, hold on to both of them. The word communion literally means we do it together. So if you would hold it, take it back to your seat, hold it there, and then together we will receive it. Let me pray. Our Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that great, magnificent, wonderful God who loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him might have life, and they might have that life eternally. Oh God, we ask that you set aside these elements from their common, ordinary use to that special use that you deigned to show that you loved us so much that you sent your son into the world to die for us that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. Thank you, Lord, that you have admitted us to your table and that trusting in you allows us the privilege of receiving these elements. We pray through Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord and Savior.